When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And James here. We just saw Top Gun Maverick for the second time. We saw it in IMAX before our Euro trip, and then we just saw it in AMC Prime yesterday. And I got to tell you, the rewatch value on this movie is exceptionally high. I still laughed. I still cried. I was still just basking in the awe of this incredible aerial footage. It was such an incredible movie theater experience. I'm so glad that they didn't release this on streaming because, as we all know, this was made in 2019. It was produced. That's when they were filming, and it was done. But they wanted to wait until movie theaters were back open again after the pandemic, and I'm so grateful they did. Yeah, and Tom Cruise had to fight for it to be in theaters only because Paramount had just launched Paramount+. Plus, So they had the, the app to post this online and... HBO Max was doing that. Hulu was posting a lot of stuff. So all these companies were... Disney was doing a lot of changing their theatrical releases to streaming. So I think it was such an amazing accomplishment for Tom Cruise to be like, stick to the guns. This needs to be a theater experience because it's not the same movie if you watch it on a laptop or in your living room. Not even close. Not even close. And I gotta say, seeing this in IMAX, I was so happy and elated blown away it really is a perfect movie it's I, I it's definitely one of the greatest action movies of the century it's pitch perfect and it's not just this high octane action the amazing flight sequences the screenplay is really good the actors even the newcomers did a fantastic job every part of this movie is just i think pitch perfect and audiences have reacted so well to it it's got a 99% rotten tomato score for the audience score a 97% critic score. That's insane. And then it has like an 8.6 on IMDb with over 150,000 ratings. And audiences, the cinema score was an A+. Audiences are just reacting to this in an amazing way. And I think it's something different for that we've been seeing for the last few years. We've been seeing a lot of Star Wars, a lot of superheroes, a lot of those kinds of movies, which we love as well. But to see something that's just like more visceral, uh, in-camera action, um, something that doesn't involve any kind of super beings or superpowers, just, you know, people who do amazing things. And I think this movie is a great testament to the love that these people who made this film have for the brave servicemen and women who put their lives on the line to protect us, to, who sacrifice themselves. They'll be ready at the moment's call tomorrow. If the, the call is given to them, they will be out there to defend us. And I think this movie does an amazing job of celebrating them. And on a budget of $170 million, this movie is still raking in the dough. It's at about $750 million worldwide. But for example, it just pulled in $50 million in its third weekend just in North America. So it's still making a ton of money. And this movie is obviously made for American audiences. It's very patriotic, but obviously it's doing super well across the world as well. And 
again, it's just pulling in so much money and it didn't see that large decrease that a lot of these big budget uh, CGI fest movies have been having. They have a huge drop after their sec- first weekend, second weekend they'll in drop terms of six, box office. They'll drop 60 to 70% in the second weekend, but this dropped, I think, 30%, 30% only in its yeah. second weekend, which is insane. It's Tom Cruise's biggest movie, most successful movie of all time, which is crazy to say because he's had some huge, immense hits. I mean, Mission Impossible Fallout was a huge success as well, but to say at the age 60, he's still the biggest <laughs> movie star on the planet, making the biggest movies of his career and the most successful movies of his career right now. Yeah, because he's never had a movie that He's never had even the Mission Impossible franchise. They're not box office weekend juggernauts. They do well, but they'll do 60 to 70 mil tops opening weekend. And he nearly doubled that with this film. And so to see that he still has such a great pull on audiences. And I think audiences, like you said, it's kind of like a a celebration of America, America and American armed forces as well and service men and women. I think that audiences have been craving something like that, something that's not super political, something that's not like trying to do something else. That's just a bare bones celebration of the people who defend us. And I think audiences have been looking for this kind of movie for a long time. We haven't seen that. It doesn't have any ulterior motives. It's just a straight action film to celebrate these men and women. It just shows you that these are the kinds of movies people still want to see. We still want to see practical, large big budget action films that are done in camera. Obviously, CGI is great, and we get to see all sorts of great stories and films and characters, but I think CGI works best to enhance practical filmmaking, which obviously, this movie has CGI in it. We're not going to say this movie is completely practical, but all the flights, all all the actors in the cockpits, they're really in these jets being flown. They're not actually flying. They're just in the back seat of these jets. Someone else is flying. However, Tom Cruise... He doesn't, he doesn't fly any of the fighter jets, but he does fly that P-51 propeller jet at the end of the film, which is actually his real-life plane. And they use, you know, the real F-18s and the real F-14, but what's really cool about— Actually, the, I'm sorry, the F-14, they uh-huh. don't, those don't really exist anymore, so yeah. they actually use the F-18, but digitally enhance it to look like the F-14. Oh, so, oh okay, that's interesting, yeah. interesting. But what's really cool about how the practical filmmaking worked was because the cameras are put into the cockpit, and they, they would have—what's really cool is— um, these new IMAX cameras, they're 6K. But the reason why they were able to put these lenses into the cockpits was because the lens on this particular camera, it can detach from the actual camera body. And so they put the camera bodies inside the empty space part of the engines of the of the jets. There was some space inside. So they put the camera bodies in there. And then through the wiring, they were able to wire the lenses into the cockpit. And so there would be, I think, five lenses in, in the cockpit for each actor. And it would be like a few different angles and different length, um, length of lenses. And that gave them, I think, five or six shots to use continuously. So that's how they're able to fit multiple cameras into the cockpit. It wasn't actually the cameras in the cockpits. It was the, the lenses attached to the camera bodies, which were in the engines. And what this does is, like, Kaczynski was able to slap on this really wide lens. Um, and because the actor's not moving around too much... They're not getting warped, which happens with wide-angle lenses if you put them too close to an actor's face. They're just sitting in the cockpit seat, so they're just center frame, so it looks fine. And what's really cool is since it's such a wide-angle lens, you can see the rest of the jet. You can see the wings on either side of the frame. And if you if you watch this movie again and you look closely at the wings, you can see them actually warping and moving. And these are the imperfections and idiosyncrasies that happen with actual flight where if they're hitting several Gs, the wings are going to... Uh, move around a little bit it's part of the, the design of the plane they have to absorb the energy and that's something that like those little idiosyncrasies are things that if 
it was done digitally with CGI, I don't think animators or even the director would have been aware of like the wings would slightly move a little bit when you're hitting this many G's. It would probably look a little too perfect, a little too clean, and just wouldn't really feel right. And I think that the fact that they did, they barely even color corrected the footage. It just feels like it, you're there on site with the actors. It, it reminds me a lot. They filmed it very similarly as the helicopter chase in Mission Impossible Fallout. It felt a lot like that. But just it felt like you were in the cockpits of these fighter jets. Because you were. Yeah, and not even Dunkirk pulled that off. And that like those shot like those cockpits were tiny. They couldn't fit cameras in them. Too many cameras in them, but I think what Kaczynski and Tom Cruise in their DP pulled off was had never really been done before in any way. And uh, filmmaking had been leading up to something like this, and it wasn't really possible. But uh, I I think that what they pulled off with this film really sets the stage for what you can do practically. And even CGI can't even pull off what these practical cameras did. I have some great. Uh, information on the cinematography of this film but before we continue the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast besides using our coupon codes is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast where you get awesome perks like personalized videos patreon shoutouts in the show weekly bonus episodes for all patrons as well as $10 and $25 and $100 tier patrons have access to our discord where we do our watch parties and where we interact with you every single day super fun $25 tier Patrons and $100 tier patrons get their own custom episode that they get to choose. We'll do an episode for you. And $100 tier patrons also get an executive producer, executive producer credit at the end of every episode. And also, they get a personal watch party. We also launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, the 22-chapter 46 video lesson course give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or go to our website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast.com. It's right there on the homepage. Thanks so much for tuning in around the world. Be sure to follow, subscribe, hit the no- no- notification bells wherever you're listening. Leave those five star reviews. Now let's get back into Top Gun Maverick. Let's now, hear these facts. So the cinematography was done by Claudio Miranda. And I just want to apologize. I have a bit of a sore throat, so bear with me from all the traveling we were doing. Like cinematographer Jeffrey L. Kimball on the original Top Gun, this is all according to ASCMagazine.com, fellow society member Claudia Miranda chose to shoot Maverick entirely with spherical lenses, says Miranda. In the jet cockpits, when you're pulling 5 to 7 Gs, 10 pounds becomes 50 to 70 pounds, so we needed small and lightweight lenses with close focus, like Anthony was talking about earlier. The cinematographer's main unit primes lens package comprised of Sigma high-speed cineprimes in the 14 to 40 millimeter range and Ari Zeiss master primes from 50 millimeters and upwards. Miranda generally shot in 6K full frame, and they were using the Sony um, Vegas uh, cam. No, the Sony Venice uh, cameras. I'm sorry, Sony Venice cameras. With exceptions including sequences captured with lenses that didn't cover the full Venice sensor and framed for 239.1 and IMAX 191. The main unit also carried a set of three Fujifilm Fujinon premier lenses from 18mm to 400mm and the company's Premista 28-100mm T9 zoom lenses and also 15-200mm to lenses from Zeiss Compact zooms. So lots of just wide-angle lenses, like Anthony's talking about, for these spherical sensors for inside the cockpit. They also mounted cameras not on the wings of the planes, because if you mount a camera or a lens on the wing of the plane, you cannot get the full function and aerobatic capabilities of the plane because it alters the balance of the aircraft. So they actually mounted the cameras on the bodies below and on top of the planes to get the incredible aerial footage. And also, the main flight coordinator and pilot of the aerial sequences of this film, his name was... 
what's his name? Something LaRosa. Give me one second, one second. Uh, Kevin LaRosa and, and also Kevin LaRosa Sr., so father and son flying duo. He, they flew the Jets as well as LaRosa Sr. flew a helicopter alongside the planes to get these great static like camera angles and shots of the planes they're flying. Otherwise, you can't get these perfect angles mm-hmm. cinematography-wise if the camera's just mounted on planes. So there's actually helicopters flying alongside the planes as well. And what's what really works so well with these flight sequences, especially when they're flying low level, when they're f- flying only uh, a couple hundred feet or even a hundred feet above the, the ground, you see the landscapes moving past them so quickly, and you know it's not fake. It's not CGI. It's real. And seeing these small hills and small mountain ranges, the valleys just speed past the actors, and it's all in the same frame. You have the actor, whether it be like Phoenix or Fanboy, and they're just in the center of the cockpit, and then the mountains and the hills and the, and the grass is just blowing past them. In the same frame, I had never seen anything like that before ever in a movie. Because Tom Cruise's one stipulation for doing this sequel was they're going to do it all in camera, not CGI. They're going to do it in the cockpits, and it took them a while to figure it out. And that's why it's so breathtaking. You've never seen anything like this in your entire life. And all again, all the pilots, all the actors, they're in these cockpits. And again, Tom didn't fly the jets. He flew the propeller plane, the P-51, which he actually owns. We see that in the Great opening. Great ending, too. Yeah. yeah, I love it. We have him in the hangar in the opening. That's his actual plane. Then him flying Penny at the end of the film, where actually Jennifer Connelly didn't know that they were going to go flying. They thought <laughs> she thought it was just going to be like an end scene where they get in the cockpit. And Tom's like, all right, we're going to fly up and do some spin. She's like, all right, let's go. But um, the actors actually had a lot of responsibility inside the cockpits of these planes because if you're thinking about it, they're acting these scenes out in these fighter jets, thousands of feet in the air, going several hundred miles per hour, and the director, Joseph Kaczynski, and the filmmakers, they're on the ground. They're not in these planes with them. So the actors actually, who were playing the pilots, not only had to film themselves turning the camera on and off, they also had to touch up their own makeup, adjust their lighting, and handle their own sound. The director, Joseph Kaczynski, Kaczynski had to wait on the ground for hours sometimes for the actors to come back with the footage. Adjustments would be made after viewing the footage and the actors would have to go back up for another take. So the actors were kind of like one man, one woman film crews inside the cockpits themselves. It's really impressive and they all did a great job. This young cast was really fantastic and I think Miles Teller especially with this role as Rooster, I think it's the most, it seems to be the most important role of his career so far. It's, I think it can really catapult him into big-time stardom. He's he's a movie star, but I feel like over the last five years or so, he's done a couple of TV shows, and he's kind of like, I think, teetered down a little bit. In I think terms it's because he didn't do La La Land. Yeah, in La La Land, he didn't do that, and I think that his star power definitely diminished he but he's done he did um the paramount tv show the godfather tv show and he also did a tv show with nicholas winning reference so he's been working with in great projects with great filmmakers but i think in terms of audience recognition and star power he's kind of lost that and it seems like top gun maverick might be the big catalyst to him breaking out again in a huge way i'm really curious to see how his career will move forward after this because he was really terrific as rooster I think he and Tom had a lot of chemistry together, especially in that third act. He did an excellent job in the role. And the rest of the young cast were really terrific together. You, it has a lot of the Top Gun things that you need in the Top Gun movie. The rivalries, the the asshole, cocky guy who wants to... He's like the Iceman role. You, you know, the... You need- Actually, if you think about it, he's Maverick. Yeah, he's Maverick. Yeah. <laughs> so he's Maverick yeah. is from the perspective objectively in the first one is a total dick. Yeah, exactly. He is the Maverick <laughs> character. And, and But you need that conflict. And I, I think the movie did a really, really perfect job of 
making nostalgic references to the first one, but not in an overbearing way. In a very and in very subtle ways, we've seen it a lot with these legacy sequels of soft reboots, soft sequ- reboots, long term sequels. In fact, in the Jurassic World Dominion, there are, there are a bunch of these, and it didn't work for me too much. Yeah. They seemed they were just a little too obvious and a little too much like exact replicas of previous scenes from the other films. But this movie, you have a lot of the great references. But they're done really well. Like obviously the opening scene when you hear Danger Zone and it's a montage of what these crews do on the carriers and what the pilots do. It's a really terrific Golden Hour. Golden Hour really terrific montage of seeing what the life is like for these people who work in these in this world. And then um obviously Penny uh, Jennifer Connelly's character is a reference to the, Penny, the Admiral's daughter, in the first Top Gun. Then instead of beach volleyball, we get beach football, which was a lot of fun. Um, you get Tom riding on his motorcycle, racing the jet as it's taking off, which was just so much fun to see. Also, the the famous um, two-shot image um, of the sex scene in Top Gun with the blue lighting in the background, they duplicated that shot in this one, but they only did that one shot where Tom um, falls down into frame above Jennifer Connelly. That's the only visual reference of that entire sequence, but they made it feel more um, authentic to real life, more realistic, and just more grounded and humanistic for a, a love scene. And instead of having sex, we just see them aftermath. They're just chit-chatting pillow talk, which is much more vulnerable to see as the character Maverick. Also, we get the Great Balls of Fire song played by Rooster. Um, the students encountering the instructor the day be- the night before at a bar, whereas Maverick encountered his, his instructor by hitting on her in the first Top Gun, in, the, in this one, the students th- toss Maverick out of the bar, not knowing that he's going to be their instructor the next day. Um, and both the F-14 plane is involved in the third act. It's a nice reference to get that plane in this movie. It's definitive with Maverick's character in the first Top Gun. And with Rooster and Goose. Yeah, also. And also, Rooster has a, says an exact line that his dad said in Top Gun. He says, come on, Mav, let's see some of that pilot shit which happens in the third act, and that's something that, that Goose said halfway through the first film. Yeah, so there's a there's a way to play nostalgia points effectively to tell a good story versus a lot of these soft reboots, these soft sequels, these legacy reboots, sequels, where they're using nostalgia just to get you into the theater, and it doesn't really work well to the story, but those are all great examples of using this nostalgia, not exactly replicating a scene. Like like you said, the great example where Maverick hit on Charlie and then finds out she's her instructor, the, the pilots throw him out of the bar and find out he's the instructor. It's the yeah. exact same effect, but also story structure-wise is an exact replica from the original story structure, which is great. The story mm-hmm. structure on this is is very similar to the original Top Gun. I mean, just the opening sequence of Dark Star was really great, which we'll get into in a little bit. That is just like a little 10-minute mini-movie on its own where Tom, or I mean, where Maverick is a test pilot for this stealth jet uh, prototype um, uh, program. Program, yeah, yeah, that's the word I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in the original, I got you, man. In the original Top Gun... Maverick is uh, Maverick and Goose. They're they're pilots. They're on a team. They're on a they're on a ship, but they're not where they want to be. And he ends up saving one of his his other pilots, one of his wingmen. And then they get set to Top Gun. So both examples yeah. show a lot of character development for Maverick. But again, like you said, gets sent to Top Gun. It's just like this the original movie, but it's done so well yeah. that it presents it in a new way, and it effectively uses nostalgia to tell a great story. And also, Tom Cruise understood that music is also very important to the Top Gun world. Which, real quick, which is why Danger Zone was great to use yeah. and Take My Breath Away was not the right thing to use. Yeah, It'd so, be too cheesy. Yeah, so Take My Breath Away wouldn't have worked with the love scene with uh, with Penny and Maverick. It wouldn't have fit the tone of this new movie because what I loved about the film is it's like showing that, I think it's the first movie where you've really felt like Tom Cruise is getting old. 
You yeah. know what I mean? He's accepting he's, his fate. Yeah, he's showing that. You know, he's the old guy in town. He keeps getting called Gramps and Pops. And also his character, who has been this guy who has avoided commitment his entire career and in his personal life. And he's been we, – we see – we learn pretty quickly that him and Penny have been off and on, off and on for years. Like just – he's always been afraid of commitment. And I think that a lot of people were criticizing the film for not casting – um, the same actress to play Charlie in this film, but it didn't. It doesn't suit the character of Maverick because he's a, a person who's always been afraid of commitment, and they showed that very quickly in this film that he's av- been avoiding commitment and being avoiding being in a long term relationship. So he's just probably been, been bouncing around from woman to woman all of his life, and then he's finally in this film growing as a human being and learning that. He needs it, it's he needs to fulfill his life not just from being a pilot but also from finding a partner as well and, and a companion a, a real life wingman and he finds that in Penny and I love the end of the film where he accepts he he embraces that and realizes I need to have another life outside of flying and Penny is an answer to that and Penny Marshall I think the romance between her and Maverick is a lot more I think believable and interesting than Charlie in the last film because the Charlie in the last film it's it, it's a little cheesy it sometimes is, yeah. but that's why I love this movie it doesn't age super well sometimes this movie is better than the original in every single way and it also what it did was it stripped away every bit of cheesiness which I love from the original yeah, 1986 it's the 80s. 80s movie cheesiness is part of the DNA and what makes it so rewatchable and fun and great but what this movie did was they grounded the story they took away every single bit of cheesiness it made it so grounded and kind of believable and realistic. Obviously, the believability of like what happens in the movie. It's a movie. Like if you eject from a, a jet going 700 miles per hour, you're probably going to break a couple bones when yeah. you're landing. You know, it's not that. It's not you're going 700 miles per hour plus. Yeah. So he does it twice and he walks away like no problem. Especially the other ones going 10 G's. <laughs> <laughs> so like it's a movie. You got a suspension of disbelief. But I think because they grounded the characters so well, and I really like how. You know, they casted age, actors the right age. You yeah. know, Jennifer Connelly's 51. Yeah. Tom Cruise is 60, and he's supposed to be, like, 55 in this movie because it's about 30 years since they, the last movie. But they filmed it when he was 57. Yeah, exactly. So. And then also, Jennifer Connelly, she's— I feel Age like appropriate. Age appropriate for this role because I feel like another studio, another act, lead actor run, running the show here, or another director, they might have cast someone, like an actress in their 30s, like cliche Hollywood does. But we have actors the right age in the roles to show the difference— and where you are in your life because we have these young hotshot pilots coming in as well as the older uh, Maverick captain who is just kind of, I have to accept my fate. Is it time to let things go? And also, you can even look at Mission Impossible where uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, East, um, Ilsa, is the love interest for Tom. And she's 36, be, something like that. 20 years younger than him, maybe yeah. even younger than that. So that's an example of also she's not quite age appropriate. But it's nice to see because it's always difficult for actresses as they age and get older they have trouble keeping steady work because, you know, Hollywood always wants like, like a, a new hot lead for the older man. And, and it's always just like this cliche thing that happens so much. So I loved how they had a age-appropriate actress to play the love interest with Tom Cruise instead of some woman in her 30s. Not new hot lead, new young. New young lead, yeah. All right, because yeah. Monica Bellucci's inspector and she's yeah. still yeah. fine as hell. Yeah, Monica is very hot. Fixed your sentence. Jeffrey Colley's still hot. She is still she's hot. Wow, <laughs> still got it. My goodness, I've always had a crush on her. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. So, ever since, um, what's it called? Requiem for a Dream. That was yeah. the first thing I saw her in. So I think, and I also think Jennifer Connelly's really great in this role. She's so fun. She's a great counter. So charming. She's a great counter yeah. to Maverick because 
she doesn't need Maverick in her life. You know, she's got a family. She's bought a bar. She has this daughter. She's a she's from her father's an admiral, so she's basically part of the navy. She teaches Maverick how to sail on that boat, and she's like, "Aren't you in the navy?" <laughs> I, like, land I land on boats. On boats. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a great character. She's got a sick Porsche. I love it. So yeah, I she's think cool. I think she's so cool in this movie. She's a lot of fun. I I but what this movie. So the the original Top Gun for people who haven't seen it, it's there's a lot of romance. Yeah, it's, it's like more romance. of a romance than an action movie. And this movie really struck down on the romance again. It doesn't. It's not as overwhelming as the first Top Gun. I think the first Top Gun is a little too romantic. Like it's it's odd. It's much. uncomfortable sometimes. Like yeah. when he walks into the woman's bathroom to talk to her, yeah. very uncomfortable yeah. today watching that. And then also when he just sh- goes to her house and he's like, "I'm gonna go take a shower. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. take a shower." She's like, "No, we're gonna eat." Yeah. Then he leaves. Then to go he take leaves. A shower. It's like, what the hell's <laughs> going, what's on? going on? And they just like stare at each other all the time. Yeah, yeah. This and is- I, we obviously understand if you listen yeah. to the episode, they're trying to keep their se- their relationship. A yeah, secret. yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it was, I think it's a little too much in terms of the pacing of the movie. But this film. I thought the romance was really excellent. It's it was very touching. They Tom and Jennifer had a lot of chemistry together. They felt like they really did have a history and they they just I think sparked on screen together and it captured the romance that you want. I think a Top Gun movie it, you need to have the romance just not too much and it perfectly balanced with the rest of the film with the action, with the drama, with the conflict. And again, it made Maverick so vulnerable. It really opened him up to the audience. And by the end of the film, when he chooses to finally commit to Penny, and he said, and he says, like he's this is the last time I'm going out your window. I think those are things that Maverick his entire life has avoided, and so the character development for Maverick at the end of this film, I think, was so powerful to see for this hotshot young cocky pilot who's just like the coolest guy to finally be like I need to settle down. I thought it was a great character transition. And also Penny is really important to Maverick getting back out there to try to save his pilots because after we'll talk about the this film and the plot later in a little bit, you know, he he gets fired basically and then John Hamm's character Cyclone is taking over the the mission and he's made their parameters so that they're going to be sitting ducks and they're not going to be able to come back from this mission and she's like those are your pilots you they need you and you're going to n- never let yourself you'll never be able to live with yourself if something happens to them and so she's motivation for him to basically get back out there hijack one of the planes which is super (laughs) like you can't do that it's a movie it's super fun but it's super and also great so penny's essential to maverick getting back out there to save his pilots just like charlie was essential to get maverick back in the jet after he was gonna leave top gun forever absolutely the f-18 isn't the only super jet in this episode we also have the lawnmower 4.0 groomer from manscaped.com use our coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout to get 20 percent off your entire order from manscaped.com and free shipping worldwide. Manscaped is the global leader in men's grooming, generally over 2 million men worldwide who are trusting their products every single day. They also just launched their Platinum 4.0 collection, which is their best deal yet and includes the following products. The Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker, Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Ultra Premium Body Wash, Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo and Conditioner, Ultra Premium Deodorant, Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Paul Deodorant, Crop Reviver Ball Spray Toner, and free gifts you get, boxers and a shed travel bag. We also just got their Boxer Briefs 2.0, which are beyond comfortable. I highly recommend getting a couple pairs of them. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout from Manscaped.com to get 20% off your entire order today and free shipping. For all you fans of movie posters, the best place to get your posters 
online is you know them movieposters.com use our very special promo code raiders10 to get 10% off your order today for all you fans of top gun it's the best place to get your top gun posters they have all sorts of selections as well as a selection of pretty much every movie and tv show imaginable in their library of amazing posters they also have all sorts of sizes they have framing and they even have backlighting for your poster needs Whatever you want for your posters, they got you covered. Again, head on over to movieposters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. And that sequence of Maverick proving that the mission can be flown and can be survived, although it has to be at 2, fi- two minutes, 15 seconds and flown perfectly. Well, but 2.30. He does it in 2.15. Yeah, to yeah show I'm that saying he do. does it in fi- oh, yeah. 2.15. Sorry. <laughs> but he he shows that it's possible to do it and survive doing it. That sequence, it was like one of the best. Just that was one of the best action sequences I've seen in years. And that was so intense and so well done. And it's just Maverick flying in an empty landscape. And that was just the suspense, the thrills, the high-octane practical filmmaking of the action. I was jam- I was juiced watching that, and it's not even the climax of the movie. It's just a, one minor action sequence of the film. But even that small thing was so great to see. Lack of CGI, so much practicality, and just classical filmmaking. Very simple filmmaking, too. And what this movie does so well is it, it builds suspense, but it also shows the real threat that these pilots have going on this mission. The first half of this movie is so fun. The pilots are cocky. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're the best pilots in the world. Who's going to instruct us how to fly and everything like yeah. that? And then and then the second half of the film, it's not until, you know, like you said, Maverick takes control of that jet, the F-18, when he's not supposed to, to prove that the mission can be done. That's when everyone's like, all right, this mission can be done, but if we don't do it like this, we're going to die. Yeah. And so that's really the, the stakes come into play halfway through this film. Then the entire second and third act, you're just on the edge of your seat palms are sweating and you're just like oh my god what's gonna happen and you think maverick's gonna die you think everyone's gonna die because maverick eventually becomes team leader and, and you see like, the funeral in the trailer yeah so the, the trailer they did a great job yeah. making it seem like not maverick's gonna die but one of his pilots might die and also for the first top gun a lot of pilots die yeah there's Iceman and maverick are the only ones who get out alive i think out of the four pilots that out of the On four the planes yeah at the final mission like that i think four jets go out and only two come back if i'm correct i can't remember but i definitely a couple get blown up and so I walked in this movie thinking that one of these pilots was going to die. Then they did a fantastic job. I love how they all survived. Yeah. I love how they all made it through. And Iceman, his death was really tragic, and it was really terrific to see Val Kilmer. That scene was so emotional and also very funny. It was just executed so well. And when I think Maverick it, goes to see Ice. Yeah, when he goes to see Iceman, I thought it was a highlight of the film. And just to see Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer hugging each other. I got so choked up watching that yeah. scene, and I really love how they respectfully in, in, uh, inserted Val Kilmer's true life condition into the film, and it felt very seamless, but also very respectful, and I just I was so happy to see him involved. And also, it was so smart that having Iceman and Maverick um, having a great relationship is why he's brought to Top Gun. Like... Like, I was watching the trailer and, and thinking about how the film would work. Like, how is he going to get sent back to Tom Gunn? What's, what's going to be the the driving catalyst to get him there? Iceman 
It makes total sense. His old friend, now a commander, is ordering him to be there. Now it totally works. And not only that, that we learn that Iceman, because they have such a great relationship and Iceman trusts Maverick with his life, that he's been his guardian angel, as Kane says. I don't know, what, like your guardian angel's like here again. He's he's like, I can't yeah. fire you. You won't die. You're going back to Top Gun. Yeah. So Iceman's been his guardian angel. Whenever Top, whenever Maverick gets into trouble, Iceman, Iceman is there to bail him out, to get him back in the plane because he knows how important Maverick is to the Navy, despite the fact that the rest of the Navy thinks that Maverick is too old. He's a dinosaur. He's a relic from a past world. They don't need him. They don't want him. He's still a wild card. And actually, Val Kermel... Val Kilmer's voice, he can't speak in real life, but the film used an, an artificial intelligence program called Sonantic to create a voice for Val Kilmer from his previous works. And it essentially learned how to mimic Vil- Cal Vilmer. <laughs> <Sorry>. Cal Vilmer. <laughs> he essentially learned how to mimic Kilmer's voice, including the iconic way that he himself talks. The revelation that Kilmer used voice AI came during a New York Post interview with his daughter, Mercedes Kilmer. In in the interview, she explained how they dubbed the voice AI over Kilmer's acting to bring his scenes to life. They were able to dub him with his own voice, which is amazing. And that AI platform literally just got bought by Spotify. I thought that it was his real voice. Me too. The first time I saw it, I always it worked. thought that he didn't have. He lost his voice. Then I saw the movie. I'm like, oh, maybe he can say a few words, but yeah, it was it actually AI. Yeah, I was. I was really impressed because I I read that article after I saw the film, and I was like, wow, that really like I felt like that was really him speaking in the scene. So they they did an excellent job with the sound there, and just to have him like. Their dialogue together it was great. Where he's like, "Who is the better pilot?" <laughs> and then Maverick's like, "It was a nice moment." Let's not ruin it. Not ruin it. <laughs> but I love how much they respect each other yeah. and how great friends they are after the great rivalry they had in the original film, and now they're just best buds. Yeah. And John Hamm did a really terrific job. He's basically the antagonist of the movie um, for most of the film. He's always butting heads with Maverick. I think he did an excellent job as the antagonist. Yes, he he's. He doesn't want Maverick there, and he's kind of been his hands are tied because Iceman has ordered Maverick to be the the teacher here. Also, Cyclone's a former pilot as well. He was top of his class at Top Gun, and I think that John Hamm did a great job as a conflict, a conflicting character with Maverick. Their back and forths are really great tension building moments for the film, and then eventually when. First, he he grounds Maverick, and then when Maverick proves that he can fly the mission, the mission is possible. Then he does the wise decision of putting Maverick as team lead. But also, Maverick changes Cyclone's character because Cyclone, in the first half of the film, he does not see this mission as being survivable for anyone. But he sees it as a necessity. They have to get rid of this base. They have to destroy it to protect the lives of innocent allies. And so I think that Cyclone is making a difficult... He's not a bad guy, but he's. He underst- I think in his point of view, this mission can't be survived. They're, and, they're expendable. The expendable assets. These pilots are the only ones who can do it, and he's putting them out there because there's just nowhere else, no one else to send. But Maverick, throughout the course of the film, sh- proves to Cyclone that not only is this mission impossible, but it's more important that these pilots come back alive. And so by the third act, I love how Cyclone's character transforms into this guy. He's more concerned about getting the pilots back home safely once the mission's completed than, saving, than, than going out looking for Maverick. He's like, nobody else is dying today. And so Cyclone's character is transformed by Maverick's passion and compassion. And he says, yeah, he says the line where you've shown that this mission is survivable. And yeah. It's the only way to survive this mission. Like you said, now he wants the pilots to come home. Or at yeah. first, there he's like, we're gonna, they're, to bring them home, right? He's yeah. like, the, these pilots take the risks. And now, before we get into the intermission, 
I say we talk a little bit about Joseph Kaczynski, who is such an underrated director. You know, this guy brought us Tron Legacy, which I think is a very underrated movie. He did a terrific job with that. That that movie's almost like a great, great film. It's just maybe a little too long, a little slow. It's a script, points. yeah. But the the directing is yeah. top notch. Visuals and directing, visual are there. effects, yeah. fantastic. Also. I don't get why people hate on Oblivion. I think that movie's great. Yeah, and he did that awesome. with Tom as well. Yeah. So him and Tom have a great relationship. And he's actually also worked with cinematographer Claudio Miranda on all of his films. And Claudio Miranda also is an Oscar-winning cinematographer from Life of Pi. Mm -hmm. And he also made this great uh, firefighter film called Only the Brave with Miles Teller, Jeff Bridges, and Josh Brolin, and Jennifer Connelly. Which is why Miles Teller and Jennifer Connelly were cast in this film because he had a great working relationship with both of them on Only the Brave, which they which came out in 2017, and so that's act and they they started pre production on Top Gun Maverick in 2018, and Kaczynski recommended Miles Teller to Tom Cruise, and that's what got Miles Teller a screen test. Miles Teller, Nicholas Holt, and another actor, oh Glenn Powell, who plays um, Hangman, they all did screen tests with Tom Cruise at his house to see who, who would be the best rooster. And then Miles Teller came out on top, but Kaczynski was the person who got him in the room with Tom Cruise. And I, poor Nicholas Holt, it seems like he misses out on every big I think role. He's, he's like second in, in every huge role. I he's feel second to the yeah, Batman yeah. from Robert Pattinson, second probably to this, second yeah, to, to... Bond? Yeah, second to... Uh, no, it's Henry Cavill. Oh, sorry, Cavill, yeah. But, but he's, he's been, been second in a lot I've of stuff. I've read that are, there are other things that he's been second to and just barely... Like huge roles yeah. that make him a superstar. Yeah, so I, I'm sure he'll get something eventually, but it's, I feel bad for the guy because I, I think he's a great actor, but he seems to just like not get to the final stage of all these great roles. But Miles Teller, I think, was pitch perfect. Yeah, and also the music was done by our boy Hans Zimmer, as oh, well yeah. as his former protege, Lauren Belf, Harold Faltermeyer, who made the original score and themes to the film, and also Lady Gaga worked on the music as well and made a song for the film. Yeah, so Zimmer and Harold, they did a lot of the score together. Um, and I love that Lady Gaga got her first composing credit because I, I pe pe there are people who hate on Hans Zimmer and like he like gets help from so many people for making his scores, and people call him more of a producer than a composer, which I think is you don't really know what goes on behind the scenes. But I've heard that a lot from people. But he always gives credit when credit is due. And Lady Gaga's song "Hold My Hand," which Lauren Belf produced, Lauren Belf was the producer of all the music and the in the score of the of the film, and so he was involved in every aspect of the music, of all of the music. And so Lady Gaga's song "Hold My Hand" inspired. Lauren Balfe and Hans Zimmer to throw those themes into the film. And so all of the the uh, the, the romantic, heartfelt themes that you hear in the, in the score, they were based on Lady Gaga's song. And also I think all the piano cues, those great little minor chords, that was Lady Gaga's inclusion to the score. And so Lady Gaga was actually working with Hans on crafting a lot of the emotional heartbeat moments of the film. And it works so well. And then it all sets all these great romantic and heartfelt themes. They set the stage for when you finally hear Lady Gaga's song at the end of the film. It just comes full circle, and it's, it just gave me goosebumps. And it worked so well for the finale of the movie, the last two minutes. And it was so incredible and profound. And it just it was a perfect capping to this to the movie. Perfect capping. Perfect capping. Right, you can hear the themes throughout all the other tracks, yeah. especially the romantic and. Uh, somber moments and actually plays during the movie did you did you pick up on where it plays it oh the song yeah hold my hand plays. yeah 
I'm gonna guess. Shoot, uh, during the one of the bar scenes. Yeah, it's, it's so it's at the the bar scene uh-huh. where he shows up and and the daughter is there. It's playing like, oh, on the, the on the speakers of the bar. Got it. Like low volume, yeah. but it's there in the background. Okay. Is the Lady Gaga song. Nice. So uh, good catch. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> Seen it twice, you know. <laughs> also, besides cinematography, production, the sound design oh, of yeah. this movie is out of this world good. It really should win. I think every sound award category there could be i mean obviously won't be nominated for best picture even though it should i it think should. It's best it movie in the last two years maybe maybe not better than dune um oh yeah oh man yeah sorry <laughs> best movie of the year i like i like to yeah i think it's the best movie of the year so far i think it is 100 percent. and the sound design is exceptional so we saw it in imax the first time it was one of my all-time favorite movie theater experiences i don't remember having that much fun in a theater it was we were fist pumping. We were smiling ear to ear I the whole time. I clapped a bunch of times. I, I was like, "Oh yeah!" I, kept, I was like, yeah. Let's, "Like I said it out, like <laughs> like six times," and I was just so happy watching this movie both times. When Maverick got saved, I was like, "Yeah!" <laughs> the immersive nature of not just the cinematography but also the sound design really puts you in the cockpit, and it's an experience I've never had before in a theater. And I, I still have trouble describing what it was like the first time because we had amazing seats at the headquarters theater, yeah. and that theater is insanely good. The sound there, it's like the best sounding IMAX theater there is because yeah. that's where they make their they mix their because movies. the room itself is a little smaller than an average theater for IMAX, but the screen is still massive, absolutely massive, and it just like I, it sounds great in every seat. I think yeah, but like that's where they mix IMAX versions of movies and so the first experience was absolutely incredible like uh, is we were my, smiling ear it was, from it was, ear the it was whole insane time. and then even we saw it again uh yesterday because it's out of imax because jurassic world dominion took everything over in imax for the screens we saw it in, in also dolby we saw it in amc prime which is similar to dolby in terms of like the recliners that you get in the big screen however the sound's not as good as dolby but yeah. you do get like a lot of reverberation and shaking in your seats from subwoofers which is really cool but um, both times is an incredible experience. But the sound really immerses you into this film, makes you feel like you're in the cockpit with these pilots. It's sensational. The production of this movie is one of the best in the last couple of years. Easy. When I when you see, when you hear the F-18's engine fire up, you're like, oh my god, this is insane. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's head on into our intermission, James. How does that sound to you? Let's do it. Let's start with the movie quote competition. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. It's been a while. I'll go first. 60 years ago, Earth was attacked. We won the war, but they destroyed half the planet. Everyone's been evacuated. Nothing human remains. We're here for drone repair. We're the mop-up crew. Oblivion? Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that they said it was aliens that attacked the planet. Okay. Sometimes I think I have felt everything I'm ever going to feel. And from here on out, I'm not going to feel anything new. Just lesser versions of what I've already felt. It's one of my favorite movies. I figured you would get it. Her, her. So good. Movie pop quiz. I mean, no, movie released year. Movie released year. Let's go. When did In the Name of the Father come out? 1987. 93. Damn. Darn it. Okay. What year did Guardians of the Galaxy come out? 
The original? The original. I think it was 2014. It was. Nice. Good job. Got it. Nice. Two I feel two. like the Marvel ones are easy to guess the dates. Yeah. Because there's all these. There's like one every year. Mm-hmm. And then the number two was 2017. All right. Movie pop quiz time. You know your stuff. <laughs> I know my MCU <laughs> stuff. Movie pop quiz. Author Patricia Highsmith is well known for writing the Tom Ripley novels. What other Patricia Highsmith novel was adapted into a movie by Alfred Hitchcock in 1951? Oh, good question. It's a wicked good question. Really good book, too. Um, what movie was 51? Dial in for Murder? Nah, dude. I think that, that was a little later. That was like 57. What is it? Strangers on a Train. Oh, nice. Really great book. Really great movie. I've never... I didn't know she wrote that. Yeah, she wrote a bunch of great movies. I mean, books. Wow. Okay, here's my quiz question. What James McAvoy film did Chris Pratt appear in as a minor role early in his career? This is good. Good question. I'll give everyone a moment. Are you going to be three for three? Yes, because I'm so wanted. Hey! (laughs) Good one. (laughs) He plays the, uh, the office bully... And he just sleeping with his girlfriend. Yes, yeah, so and then he uh, he whacks him in the face with the keyboard, and it's like the slow motion. He drinks like energy drinks yeah, and stuff yeah. too. <laughs> just start somewhere. Our Godfather shout out for today is our friend Josiah. What's up, Josiah? Josiah, thank you so much for being a Godfather patron. He has chosen Wrath of Man. Oh yeah, as well as other heist movies for his Godfather Patreon review. So we're going to do like a bunch of like British heist films. So Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie style movies. <laughs> and we loved Wrath of Man too. That's an awesome, Such a good underrated movie. movie. It really is. It was really, really cool. So Josiah, thank you so much for being a Godfather patron. It literally helps us keep the lights on for the show and allows James and I to do the show full time. And our Godfather patron list has grown exponentially. We have so many awesome reviews to do. We're doing two a week and we're still... Have, we have, uh, we a, have a long list. list, so just bear with us and yeah. please be patient because yeah. we will get to you, all your episodes. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like amazed at how many we have now. It's so it's grateful, so fantastic. And the Godfather series has become like one of my favorite things to do now. Yeah, we have super some awesome fun. episodes. We've yeah. done like I think 20, 25 so far. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot a, more cussing in those. Yeah, ones. yeah. <laughs> more freewheeling on the Patreon episodes. So Josiah, thank you so much for being a Godfather patron. You became a patron we, on the day Godfather of my daughter's patron. wedding. <laughs> you act like a man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks so much, Val. We appreciate you. Our um, our supporter of the week is a five star review from Lamar Scrodom. <laughs> I think <laughs> it worked, Lamar. You said it. I, I tried to say it so it didn't sound like it. Tried to, but you can't. Uh, these guys are the best in the game. Been listening for six plus months, and I love them so much. Oh, wow. They are the purest movie lovers, and they that are not pretentious or overly critical. They're just so funny and optimistic about most movies. Thanks, thanks Lamar. so much, Lamar. Except Appreciate for it. Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> What's your streaming recommendation for today? My streaming rec is The Color of Money, which is on Amazon Prime nice. right now. I have it right here on my wall. The sequel to The Hustler. I uh, think it's one of the one of the most underrated and greatest sequels ever made. Came out the same year as Top Gun in 1986. He had a big year that yeah, year. Yeah, Tom had a big year. And um, Paul Newman, I believe he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in that film. Possibly. Or Lead Actor. That's a great movie. Great. Under, people don't know, but Scorsese Underrated made that. Scorsese movie. It's, Lots of cool camera work and cinematography. It's so with creative. Like, with the pool tables yeah. and, the, and, the, and the balls and everything. Man, it's so good. I love um, that movie. On this day in film oh, history. Oh, my streamer. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you're skipping the order. We're supposed to do on this day in film history first, FYI. 
hey, give me a break. We haven't done this in three weeks. <laughs> My streaming recommendation is Only the Brave on Hulu, which is Joseph Kaczynski's firefighter film, which I re- re- recommended earlier. I watched it last night, and I thought it was really great. Uh, it's, it got a 7.6 on IMDb, but it didn't, make, it didn't make that much money. I was surprised. I, I, I don't think I remember even hearing about it. When did it come out? 2017. It's got Josh Brolin, Jeff Bridges, Miles Teller. I remember Teller, seeing trailers and Taylor stuff for Kish. it. Taylor Kish. Yeah, but it's really good. It's a solid, just like dramatic film about, you know, service men and women and people who put their lives on the line. First to, responders. Yeah, first responders. It's, it's about uh, firefighters in who stop uh, wildfires. Oh, yeah. I remember hearing yeah, about that. Yeah. It's really terrific. I remember seeing trailers. Um, who we got for haters this week? Like any any unsubscribes oh, uh, yeah, or I any got, haters? I got a bunch. Here, you pull that up. I'll do on this day in film history before you, you get that done. So on today is June sixteenth in nineteen sixty. Psycho opens in New York City in nineteen seventy eight. Grease is released in nineteen eighty. The Blues Brother premieres in Chicago, Illinois. In Illinois. In 1989, Ghostbusters 2 is released. In 1995, Batman Forever opens with a record 528 million opening weekend, starring Val Kilmer, obviously. In 2000, Shaft is released. In 2002, Lilo and Stitch is released. In 2006, Nacho Libre is released. In 2017, 47 Meters Down is released. In 2019, Euphoria premiered. And happy birthday to the late Tupac Shakur, John Cho, and Daniel Brühl. Christian Bale's the villain in Shaft. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like his only bad movie. <laughs> but we have a bunch of uh, Shaft. Uns- Shaft. A bunch of unsubscribes this week. So, the and T one T nineteen ninety wrote, "You didn't pronounce Darth Plagueis right." Unsubscribed. <laughs> I'm sure I just I just said it it's wrong Plagueis. again. It's Plagueis, right? Plagueis, Dark Plagueis, Darth Plagueis, Plagueis. Mm-hmm. Everyone listening is like shaking their heads, (laughs) punching the dashboard. (laughs) (laughs) Unsubscribe. They're still getting it wrong. 50 computers were just broken. (laughs) And then um, Plagueis. Plagueis? No, Plagueis. Plagueis? Let me hear it. You keep going. And then the Popcorn Podcast wrote, in your movie trivia episode, you said Thor 3 was coming out. It's four. God, learn how to count. (laughs) Unsubscribe. (laughs) I said that. I'm a boathead. (laughs) Ragnarok was number three. You got it? Hold on, ready? Let's hear it. Darth Plagueis. Darth Plagueis? I don't know. That's a computer voice. I don't know if Darth I trust it. Darth Plagueis. I don't know. Maybe it's right, though. And then uh, Caleb Plagueis. Caleb Jeter wrote, When James asked who are some of the best young directors with three or less movies under their belt, y'all said great names that I agree with, but neither James Anthony nor George mentioned the Safdie brothers. Oh. Good time, not cut gems in their first film. Unsubscribe! Caleb, you're so right. Great pick, Caleb. Yeah, we, we totally forgot about that. But safeties are killing it. Yeah, they're destroying it. Their next movie is going to be Adam Sandler again. Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Um, Those are the unsubscribes this week. Is it time to get back into the danger the episode? Zone? Let's go back into the danger zone. How dun, about dun, dun, we talk dun, a little dun, bit about the cast dun, and then we'll get into dun, the story and plot dun, like that. Dun, dun. Because obviously we have Tom coming back as Captain Pete Mitchell, Maverick. Jennifer Connelly we talked about as Penny Benjamin. I think I said Marshall earlier. Sorry. Uh, Miles Teller plays Rooster, a.k.a. Lieutenant Bradley Bradshaw, who is the son of Goose from the original Top Gun. Val Kilmer is back as Iceman Admiral Tom Kaczynski, who is commander of the fleet. And then we also have some other great characters. I think Hondo is a great character. He's great, yeah. He's kind of like yeah, uh, did an awesome played job. by Bashir Salahuddin. He is kind of Maverick's like right-hand man. Wherever he goes, Hondo's there with him. John Hamm, like Anthony said, is Cyclone, who is the uh, the air boss. Charles Parnell plays Warlock, who's a great 
a counter to Admiral Cyclone. They're called because Orders Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> Warlock believes in Maverick, and I think Warlock is just waiting for Maverick to get the chance and always thought Maverick should have been on the mission and should be the team leader. Yeah, because before the mission, when he says goodbye to Maverick, when Maverick's about to be lifted up onto the carrier, he's like, you're where you belong. Well, you're where you you're belong. You're where you belong. I was like, oh my god, this gave me goosebumps. It was great. Monica Barbaro as Phoenix, another hotshot young pilot. Uh, Louis Pullman is Bob, super funny, kind of dorky guy. We actually read an interview with an actual pilot who talked about the realistic nature of the film. Obviously, most of it's wrong, but he said like Bob is the most accurate because those dudes in the back seaters are always like dorky guys like Bob. Yeah. So he said that that was actually realistic. The techies, yeah. That's actually Bill Pullman's son. Is it really? Yeah, Bill Pullman's oh, son. Oh, snap. Yeah. He was also in that Amazon show. Yeah, he was in Outer Range. That's crazy. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. He did kind of and say. ironically, Bill Pullman flew an F-14 at the end of Independence Day. That's pretty crazy. Uh, Jay Ellis plays Payback, another young pilot. Then we have Danny Ramirez as Fanboy. Glenn Powell as Hangman. Uh, so many other young cast members as well. Let's see. We have Coyote played by Greg Tarzan Davis. And basically, these young pilots make up this new crew. They're the, the Mavericks there. He's supposed to train these pilots on this mission. And the mission is they have to destroy this uranium enrichment facility, which is in violation of NATO peace treaties. And we don't know what country it is. You can make some assumptions for yourself. They just call it the enemy, which is obviously, I think, the smart thing to do is to not, like, pick a country of where this is. Yeah, they did the same thing in the first film. Yeah, They, so didn't, they didn't name a country. It was, yeah, it was a little more ambiguous here, though, because the other one's like the black logo with the red star, so you yeah. can kind of make assumptions. Yeah, yeah. But this one's just kind of just the enemy. And so, basically, there's this almost impossible mission that Maverick is brought in to train these pilots I love how, how in, the, in the meeting he's like it's been a while since I've flown an F-18 and they're like hold on yeah, hold you're, on. Not, you're not flying, you're not flying. This is, I'll make it work though <laughs> I love it like, you know you're not flying you're, you're gonna teach how to you're gonna teach it yeah but also this felt like um I think he injected a little bit of the Mission Impossible structure into this film. Oh yeah, I think McQuarrie came yeah. in and did that. Yeah, and also I think McQuarrie wrote the third act. Yeah, there's actually there's actually five writers. So two people came up with the story, then three people finished up the screenplay. There's also ten producer and executive producers. So a lot yeah. of people are involved with the story of this film. Mm -hmm. and I think that was important because it actually pulled it. They pulled off a great script and a great story. And McQuarrie is a very smart writer. He's one of the re main reasons why the modern Mission Impossible movies have been some of the best action movies of all time. Rogue Nation and Fallout, as well as Jack Reacher is just a sick movie. So I think that he's a really excellent writer-director, which is why Tom has been working with him for 10 years now. And so Maverick is coming in to teach all these hotshots how to dogfight, basically. And he's basically basically stripping everything down. He's like, you've been told you're the best pilots on the planet your entire careers. Let's just pretend like you know nothing now because you don't know anything. This mission is going to be like unlike anything you've ever flown before. Because, because all of their, their previous... Work has just been flying from high elevation and dropping a missile or a bomb with no dogfighting at all. So, and a hangman's the only one with a kill, but still, he just he's even he has very little experience with dogfighting. Yeah, and Cyclone is kind of of that belief that like we don't have to go too serious about this, we can do this from a safer way and more efficient. And, and whereas we understand why Iceman brought Maverick back is because we need someone like Maverick to teach these tactics to be able to bring these pilots home rather than just achieving the mission. And I really like the Rooster Maverick relationship because walking into the film, I was under the assumption that Rooster would still be would be mad at Maverick about and blame him for Goose's death from the first film. But that wasn't at all because then I was like, I don't know if that seems like plausible because Maverick was proven innocent in that case. And so 
a great new conflict was come up was uh, created by the writers where Maverick pulled Rooster's papers when he was trying to get into the Naval Academy because he didn't think he was ready and also he was trying to protect him, trying to be like a father and also respect his mother's wishes of not letting him fly. And so that set Rooster's career back several years because he wasn't able to get into the Academy when he first applied. And so that has created the tension between the two characters. And still, yeah, the Goose, his father's death still lingers over that, but that's not why he's mad at Maverick, which yeah, I really liked. There's so much emotionality to this movie, and this is just one of the relationships that Maverick has that brings that to the film. You know, Maverick's got this decision. Do I let Rooster go on this mission? And if he does, he could die. But if I don't let him go, I could lose him forever in terms of being a father figure to him because you can. we can assume that Maybe Rooster grew up with Maverick in his life regularly yeah. and they were friends, but it's not until the papers got pulled where he turned on Maverick and didn't understand why Maverick did that. And that's why he won't speak to him unless he's addressed as lieutenant. He won't even respond to him if he's addressed as Bradley or mm -hmm. something like that. So we can assume that they had a decent rela relationship where Maverick was in that father figure position for the most of his life because he has those photos of him and everything. But then, then the papers get pulled and that's where they become enemies. Yeah, it was a, it was a great character growth for both of them. And then... By the time the final mission was upon them, you could tell that Rooster had forgiven him and wanted to say you sorry and accept him again. But then Maverick, rather than talking about that, like we're about to die and it's our final words together, he's like, I'll we'll talk about it when we get back. I thought it was a great moment. And to stay on the emotionality, I cried four times when I watched <laughs> this movie the first yeah. time. And it's so effective. And there's this great sequence in the first act of this movie. After Maverick leaves Darkstar and he shows up to the bar um, and we have this great sequence where he runs into Penny. But then we also get character introductions of the new pilots and we also get Bradley there. The, the Obviously, there's a dy dynamic there where Maverick is not welcome in Bradley's life because he's trying to hide that he's there. And also seeing Bradley play piano like his father playing Great Balls of Fire, which in terms of believability, um, a bunch of millennials knowing the lyrics <laughs> to that song is probably the least believable yeah. part of this movie. Yeah, yeah. But so maybe fun. it's a Navy thing. Yeah, maybe, but it's so yeah. fun. Um, That's my guess. Just, just kidding. But this, this <laughs> sequence, it's like 10, 15 minutes long, but it's so important to set the story for the characters going forward for the rest of the film. And they actually – I think they nailed it. They knocked it out of the park. You're like, introducing 10 characters in five minutes. Exactly. They did a great job with it. They really did. And yeah. so you get, a, you get a perspective of every character, not only Maverick, where he's at right now in terms of he's changed but not completely changed. He's, he still has work to do in terms of who he is and accepting his fate for going forward. We, we get a character uh, – characterization of penny right away she's super cool super fun uh but also you know pushing maverick away because she doesn't want to get hurt again we get introduced to bradshaw who's just like his father goose it's dresses the same looks the same the same mustache it's really great but also we get introduced to phoenix and bob and payback and hangman we get the introduction of hangman being this big hot shot maverick kind of character he's not like Iceman. he's more like maverick than anybody you know mm -hmm. he's the one in the meetings looking back at everyone which is what mavericks was, was doing so i think when because people... yeah Iceman was worried that if he flew with with maverick as his wingman he's gonna be put at risk in the first film yeah and that's everyone's worried about flying with hangman yeah but then also hangman's worried about flying with uh rooster because he flies too slow so there's it's a great sequence where they're playing pool introducing us to everybody you know bob's super funny and he's the backseater for phoenix phoenix is really cool and i think that they just did a, a such an incredible job with the scene and then we get when bradley is playing great balls of fire on the piano and he gets kicked out because he his card got declined 
And then he sees Bradley playing, and we have the flashbacks of Goose and Maverick and Meg Ryan's character, and then little young little rooster on top of the piano singing, and then we get the flashback of, of Goose's death. It really ties us emotionally into the story going forward in the plot, and it really brings the characters to fruition. And we're just like on this journey, and I got goosebumps, and I teared up at this moment. It was so, it was done so well. I also really love the Dark Star sequence of Dark the Star opening of sick. the film. Uh, where they're this program where they're trying to develop uh, a new plane that can hit Mach 10 successfully and continue flying after that. And the program is about to be shut down, and Maverick puts his career on the line to save the jobs of everyone who's working on the program by going against the Admiral Kane's orders to fly the Dark Star jet to Mach 10. And then <laughs> it's a beautiful sequence, really well shot and just... It's a it's a great start to the film. Like you, it feels like the climax of another movie. Yeah, it's like a little mini movie. Yeah. Also, some of the cinematography and imagery I saw, I've never seen in a movie before. Yeah. Like, and, like in the clouds going ten Gs, yeah. the 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 path of the plane in the clouds. So incredible. he was going. Um, so he was going two miles per second. Is how fast he was flying. It's wild. When he, miles, was, when he hit ten Gs. Yeah, two. It's like two point two miles per second. How many miles per hour is that, or kilometers per mile? Per mile per hour, it's like um, seven thousand miles per hour. Super fast. Yeah. So if going that speed, Mach ten, you can fly around the circumference of the Earth in an hour. That's how fast it is. That's wild. The entire circumference, not just like from one continent to the other. And it was so well done, and it was very funny. It showed all the character traits of Maverick, the cockiness. It's like the the willingness to sacrifice himself for the others, which he developed by the end of the first Top Gun. Which he had, no, he does that. He also does that in the first yeah, scene yeah, of yeah, Top Gun, right, where he right. saves the other yeah, pilot. Yeah, he's always had that in him. And then also, once he hits hits ten, he's like, let's go a little further. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously he bails out. The plane crashes, and we have a really funny sequence when he enters that little small town cafe restaurant, and the kid thinks he's like a spaceman. He's like, <laughs> he's like where am I? He's like Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great sequence, and also one of my favorite moments from the trailer and one of the best shots of the movie is when Ed Harris' character Ad- Admiral Kane is staring out at Mav as he's taking off, and the plane just zooms right overhead and it lifts the roof of that little shack that was actually not planned the roof was never intended to lift up that shows they really filmed this for real it's not cgi it was a complete accident no one expected the roof to lift up on its own from the force of the g's of this flying jet and uh, what's what's really great about the development of the character of maverick is that he's still a captain and it's, it's a joke that's played out a couple of times in the film to great effect and he's like a highly decorated captain <laughs> but the reason why he's never been promoted and never moved on and, and um who's who says it kane says he could be a two-star admiral by now is or a senator be, yeah exactly because for maverick he belongs in the air and he belongs in a plane and that's why warlock says you're where you're belong where you belong and that's why when in this opening he tells kane that i'm where i belong i'm flying in a way maverick has been self-destructing his career development and preventing himself from moving up the ladder so that he could remain a pilot all these years because that's what he is. It's who he is. It's what he tells Iceman. He's like, it's not just what I am. It's who I am. He's like, how do I teach that? He's not a senator. He's not an authority figure. He's not an admiral. He's not a general. He's a pilot. And so he's always geared his life towards being a pilot. And I really love that even though he's in his 50s and he's, he's much older, he's still the same pilot he always was. He doesn't want to be anything else. And I love the opening, not just Dark Star, but we see what's Maverick doing now? It's been 30 so cool. years. He's He has a hangar in the Mojave Desert. Mojave. He's, Mojave. 
<laughs> I think I did that last time. So I think there's been an unsubscribe comment. The Mojave Desert. The Mojave Desert. Over there in the, the Mojave Desert. The Mo Mojave Desert. The Mojave Desert. <laughs> He's got a hangar. He's got his own plane again. That's Tom Cruise's actual plane that he flies. He flies at the end of the movie. It's his only... motorcycle. He's got his motorcycle. He's got the jacket, the same jacket with all the same patches. He's just eating like eggs and toast or something. And then he's just driving to his job where he's a test pilot for this secret stealth plane program called Dark Star. Now, even though this jet, this Dark Star jet is fictional, it's based on a real stealth jet. So the Dark Star that Maverick test flies appears to be based on an actual concept for a Mach 6 uncrewed airplane, which was tentatively referred to as the SR-72 and revealed by Lockheed Martin Skunk Works in November 4th, 2013 issue of Aviation Week and Space Technology. The airplane was projected to enter service no earlier than 2030. The overall configuration of Dark Star in the movie looks very similar to the SR-72 concept, as well as the use of a turbine engine at low speed and a scramjet at high speed. Both the Skunk Works logo, that skunk on the back tail of the plane, and the Lockheed, Lockheed Martin corporate logo are clearly visible in multiple shots of Dark Star in the film. And they actually just made it look a little cooler and more cinematic for the movie. But it's badass. based on a real stealth jet, which is really cool. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and the skunk is on one, like the, one of the dials in the inside yeah, the cockpit, yeah. too. You can see the little skunk. I thought it was a reference to Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> I don't know. I know nothing about aviation, so I was like, oh, maybe someone's a fan of it. <laughs> Looney Tunes fans over yeah. here. <laughs> but I, I love the structure of the film because I think making so many of these big action films, Tom has really developed the perfect structure for these stories where you go set piece, character, story, set piece, character, and story, set piece, character, and story. And it's structured that way in terms of the training sequences. So there's three training sequences. The first one is where Maverick is is shooting down all the all of the um, pilots, where he's showing that he's a much better dogfighter than all of them because they don't have much experience with that aspect of, of flying. And then the next training sequence is flying through the canyon at a low rate, at a low level. And then the third training sequence is doing the entire mission, going up the the incline going down shooting the rocket and then escaping so it's three training sequences which act as huge action set pieces in between each of the character moments and beats which really help develop the story get us a, uh, help us understand how incredibly difficult this mission is where even the best pilots in the world are struggling with just the training exercises where they're just using computer enhancement computer um, maps to navigation navigate what this real terrain would be like they're struggling just like that and they're not even in the real valley that they're going to be in so i thought it was a really brilliant way to structure the film and also show how difficult the mission would be for all these pilots the mission is intense so what they have to do is they have to in two and a half minutes make it to the uranium enrichment oh, well, facility before, i love how we get that establishment of what the mission is Within like twenty minutes of the movie, yeah. It's as great. soon as he shows up yeah. to Top Gun, he's like, "This is this is the mission." So they have to destroy this uranium enrichment facility again, which is located between two mountains. The first mountain is pretty damn tall, but the second mountain is extremely tall. And so what they have to do is they have to stealthily fly under radar of these missiles that are at the top of this cavern, this like tunnel like canyon, cab yeah. canyon. Yeah. and they have to fly. That the distance in two and a half minutes and then ex eventually pull up to go over the first mountain and invert downwards and then shoot a shoot one missile to destroy the protection of the facility and then the next team has to shoot the actual missile inside the facility to blow the entire thing up and then after they if they pull off miracle number one they have to 
pull up 10 G's over the super tall second mountain and then survive not only just the climb without passing out, but also the missiles that will be launched at them as soon as they go above radar at the top of... once they pass the top of the mountain, and then if there are any other planes, they have to dogfight their way home. So yeah. it's an almost unsurvivable mission. And it's I, every one of the training sequences shows how how it seems like nobody could ever pull this off. And it gets to the point where once Maverick loses his spot as instructor and Cyclone takes over, where he, he changes the training to be, what, four minutes, and then you don't have to go as fast and... He's more focused on let's just get them to the uranium plant to fire the missiles and then, you know, they'll try and get out of there alive as best they can. And that's when Maverick has to prove that this can be done. You have to fly it like this. But the kids, the, the pilots, they lose all hope once Admir- once Cyclone takes over and shows that they're changing the mission parameters. And they, they, it seems like I'm not going to get out of this alive. So it's important for Maverick to show them that this mission can be done and they can survive if they are called on duty for it. Yeah, and I think Maverick's first objective is to create a team. And they don't get along these pilots because they're pilots. They're fighter jet pilots. They're all hotheads. They're all super confident, except for Bob. But <laughs> Phoenix, Hangman, Rooster, they're all very confident people. Hangman's the most cocky, of course, and he's probably the most difficult to work with. Even though he might be the most talented of all the pilots, he's the most dangerous. He's kind of like what Maverick used to be, a little more hot-headed. Um, but, you know, the dynamic between, I think, Rooster, Hangman, and Phoenix is really great for the story. And I think specifically between Rooster and Hangman, where they have a past, Hangman, you know, Rooster tells him the only thing Hangman will lead you to is an early grave, whereas ha- Hangman's like... The only place that Rooster will lead you to is to running out of fuel. Mm-hmm. So they both have uh, character flaws where Rooster's like waiting on something. He's just waiting for something to click so that he can push himself forward to su- succeed and achieve the goals he's trying to make. Whereas uh, Hangman is too arrogant. He doesn't care about his team. He's called Hangman because, as Phoenix tells us, he le- he'll hang you out to dry and will leave as a wingman. Yeah, Hangman wants to just be the one that gets the kill and succeeds and wants the glory. In Rooster, you could say his father's death while flying has probably caused him to be more conservative than he needs to be. I think he that, wants to. He's like, we have to survive. Even yeah. though he's the only person who makes it to the target, he still would have been killed. Yeah, so I think that his father's death is what makes him uh, a more cautious and hesitant flyer. But he's also he's very wise because he understands that in which Maverick understands later on when they're in the dogfight against the fifth generation fighters in the F fourteen that Rooster tells him there's another way to fly this mission and it's about the pilot, not the plane. Exactly. Which eventually yeah. comes true when Maverick is going against the fifth generation fighters. He's able to, they're able to take out two, but after that they're just sitting ducks yeah. from that one. And there's even more tension built between Rooster and Maverick throughout the story before the mission. But I think what Maverick does super effectively, and it's a great nostalgic moment to the original Top Gun, is they have the beach sequence where they're playing football, offense, and defense, both sides against each other, which is he's basically building a team to teach dogfighting, which is really interesting if you're both facing each other, playing offense and defense. And then just to see Tom just like laughing with the sunglasses and the sunlight. Dude, it still looks great for 60. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah. And then uh, I love how Kane shows up. He's like, why are we here? He's like, I'm building the team, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a good song by... um. 21 Pilots. No, One Republic. One Republic. Get your pop music correct. It's, it was a very... Well, 21 Pilots originally was... Um, they were going to do it? Yeah. 
but then Tom Cruise didn't like what they did. I think the song fit perfectly. I, th- I think it was really great. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's the very scene, catchy. It's a really important scene because it builds the team. And even Hangman's become humbled a bit from it as well. And obviously, Maverick proves that the mission can be flown survivably. And he is then chosen by Cyclone, the, the air boss, to be team leader. Which is kind of, you can tell what Maverick wanted from the beginning anyways. This is why the movie works. This is it. They understood this is Maverick's franchise. Every All these new legacy sequels and legacy reboots, soft reboots, they're always replacing the beloved characters with a younger cast. Um, but also, there's this weird thing going on where all of these characters that we grew up loving from the originals, in the new films, they are constantly shown to be like dilapidated and like depressing and just like, Shells of themselves. Shells them, yeah, shells Everything of Everything that they've achieved in the previous films has just gone like, out the window. Yeah, and I I keep getting confused as to why this keeps happening with these characters that we love. And um, I mean, the most famous example was the original trilogy, except for in the uh, in the Star Wars franchise, and you know Han Solo just being like a like nothing happened. It's as if nothing happened before in the other films for him. It's and, like when he was first. Yeah. And then, and then Luke just being a, a recluse and drinking titty milk. Yeah. <laughs> but then there are a lot of other examples and I just, I, I keep, I'm just finding myself more and more confused why these legacy characters, these characters that we love are always shown to just be like, like you said, shells of themselves. But this movie and also to be replaced like this, like, Oh, the studio's going to, we're going to do the same thing, but with new young cast members. But this movie is different from all of them, and the, it's the reason why it's the best legacy reboot, you could say, soft reboot ever soft done. Soft sequel. Soft sequel, because it's still Maverick's movie, without a doubt. He is still the lead, and he is the one flying the F-14 at the end of the film. This People go to see this movie for Maverick and for Tom Cruise, and I think another studio, and especially if Tom didn't have as much control as he does over these franchises, Mission Impossible and this one, I think if uh, if uh, studio heads were involved and execs were in head, they would have cast a young new pilot to take over, and it would have probably gone the same way where Maverick would have been shown to be like a dilapidated former version of himself who's needs to be shown the ropes by the young cast, and he's like an idiot and and probably messing things up where a new young cast member is like doing everything for him. You could have totally seen that happen if it was another studio. Oh, probably, I bet you another studio probably would have replaced him with Rooster in the front of the seat. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so why this movie works so much is because it's still Tom Cruise's movie and it's still it's still Maverick's movie by the end of the film. In the third act of the movie, to have Maverick be the lead of the mission, I didn't even see that coming. Me neither. I thought he would be flying for sure, but to just be like, this Maverick, you're the lead of the mission. I was like, yes, let's go. This is how it's done. We're here for Maverick. We're not here for these like to see a new young pilot take over Maverick's duty. We're here to see Tom Cruise fi- fly a fighter jet and kill bad guys. And that's what the- makes the movie work so well. It's Maverick. He's the hero. He saves the day. We want it. That's yeah. what you're going to see. And they knew it. Tom Cruise understands that. Krasinski understands it. Jerry Bruckheimer and, and um, his producer Don Simpson, Don Simpson, and Don Granger. Yeah, they they know what the what you want. This is what we wanted. We want Maverick to be the one that's saving the day. Obviously, the entire team works together to yeah. save the day. But at the end of the day, it's Maverick saving him and Rooster being saved by Hangman too. But the entire third act is incredible because they pull off the mission successfully, and Rooster. 
This movie's full of redemption moments, not just for Maverick. And Maverick, not to say he's like a perfect character, he's a perfect hero. He goes through a lot of transformations like we talked about earlier and throughout the film. Rooster goes through transformations as well where on the mission, he finally kicks into high gear. He gets going and he becomes the pilot that he could have always been and is meant to be. And he kind of has the same thing with in the cockpit that his father, that Maverick has with Goose. There's like, talk to me, dad. Talk to me, Goose. It's yeah. actually really interesting that they both do that. And so it's a great moment for Rooster to become a leader of his duo with his wingman, and they save the day. And it's basically a new hope. Yeah, they, yeah. they have to blow up the Death Star, yeah. and he does it without guidance system, which yeah. is pretty incredible. But the mission, it's so great because we saw how difficult and impossible it was from the from the training exercises. And so even though there's no um, enemy planes like attacking them while they're doing the mission, just them – Pulling off the mission seemed like an impossible feat, and so when they they when they accomplished it, it was so overwhelmingly awesome to see. But not just when they accomplished, which was five minutes of tension, it felt like because yeah. it's probably a little more than two. And so a half well done. But as soon as so they well successfully achieved the mission, again they're getting shot by missiles, and yeah. now this is the moment during the entire mission where you're actually like, oh, they might die. Someone might not come back from yeah. this. Like hope is kind of lost. They are running out of flares. Rooster runs out of flares. There are yeah. more missiles coming after them. And they, someone might die. I thought someone's gonna get get blown up. Obviously, when Maverick gets gets shot down, but he sacrifices himself to save Rooster, and then Rooster sacrifices himself to save yeah, yeah, Maverick. It's great. Super funny when Maverick finds him. He's like, he's like, what are what you are doing, doing here? I saved your life. That's, That's the, the whole point. point. <laughs> you he's told like, me not to. Th- what were you thinking? You told, told me, me not, not to think. think. <laughs> and he's like, all right, good point. But I thought Maverick was dead. Me too. I thought when his ship, when his um, jet got. Cut in half. <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god, man!" I was like, "I oh me." I was when it happened. I was like, "It suits the movie. Like it, it, it makes sense for Maverick to go out saving him." I thought he was gonna die before the mission. I was like, "I think Maverick's gonna die in this movie." When he gets announced and chosen as team leader, it's very emotional because he's in his navy whites and he goes to see Penny. Yeah, and they're looking at the ocean and everything. It was really powerful. I thought I'm like, yeah. "There's no way Maverick." Survives this mission. This. He's gonna save the day, but he's probably gonna die. I felt like that he was gonna die. Yeah. It was really emotional. And and sacrificing himself to save Rooster, it seemed like a fitting end for him to do. So I totally believed that he was dead. But then, when it, when we don't see the aftermath and see him crashing, I was like, oh, I bet he's still alive. And then the cam when the other pilots are ordered to leave the area, and then it cuts to black, and then. Uh, it fades open and then we see Maverick just lying on the snow. I'm like, yes, he's still alive. And so this is where Rooster saves Maverick. And in the article where I, I read about the pilot that was reviewing it in terms of the believability of it, he said of all the, the missile strikes and hits that this one was the most realistic and believable. He's like, yeah, that's a good hit where um, Rooster comes and shoots down the helicopter that's about to shoot down Maverick. Yeah. And so he's like, that was one of the best moments of the I movie. J- I fist pumped so hard. That I was, was like, that yeah! was incredible. It was epic. Unfortunately, Rooster gets shot down. But then it's just movie. It's behind. They're behind enemy behind lines. Enemy lines. I was like, when this when, running around the forest. When they're in the forest, like looking out on the the air pad in the distance, I was like, I can't believe this is happening. This is so amazing. I did not see this coming. It's so unexpected. This is where I think Christopher McQuarrie really came in. Because I think so many other writers, they would have ended it with the end of the mission, and that would have been the end of the movie. But McCory's a very creative writer, and the way he his third acts are always fantastic. I think he, I, I my guess is he really wrote this behind enemy lines sequence, which really catapulted this movie into just like god tier action movie territory. <laughs> because the mission's done, 
and they still need to escape. And because this is Maverick's movie, what are they going to escape in? An, an F-14! F-14! From the original. It was like, when, and then when they looked in the hangar and there was an F-14 jet, I was like, oh, Maverick's flying that. I, I immediately said, Maverick's flying that. He's going to kill some bogeys in the this. Rooster's going to be in the back, just like Yeah, you. just so, like the original. So it's so nostalgic. It's, nostalgia. it's done so well to enhance the story and... It's, it's it's funny. So good. It's super funny, and and it's thrilling. And they get in the F fourteen, and they're taken off. This thing's so old. It's like they're meant to be there together yeah. in this moment. It seems meant to be like it should have been written like this, and it was. And Maverick, being the greatest pilot in the world, basically, and from the advice that he gave Rooster and he gave him, don't think, just do, is able to take down two of these fifth generation jet and these these fighter jets, which they should hundred percent be destroyed by easily. But because he's a quick thinker. He takes out one, and then they eventually, he eventually takes out the other one. But it's it's such a in, intense it's so well done because yeah. he sh- they should be blown up at any second, yeah. but they survive somehow. And it's a great blend of comedy, action, thrills, suspense, and it's really cool how he takes them out because he takes the first jet out because the two jets um, circle around him and they're just like trying to see who they are. They're like thumbs, thumbs up. up. Like, oh, yeah. we can't what see. does that mean? We can't hear anything. <laughs> can't hear anything. Just and smile. Then, <laughs> and then they and then one of the jets gets behind them into striking area. Um about to hit them and then Maverick just like shoots to the right and machine gun fires on the first jet and then uses the other jet as uh in between when the second jet fires a missile at him. Yes. So causing the first jet to completely blow up and protecting themselves from the first missile. Genius. Then it's a straight up jog dog fight. Like while this plane has been shot down falling, he uses it as a shield. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so cool. And then the dog fight between Maverick and the F-14 and the 5th Gen fighter was just amazing of them trying to first evade the 5th the Gen. Then he manages to get the upper hand on the 5th Gen from behind him. And then the 5th Gen does this crazy maneuver of just stopping completely. using The, the jet uses its body to stop itself. And then he just like spins around behind them. <laughs> Rooster's like, what the, what the hell the fuck was that? Was that? <laughs> it was so funny. And then and managing through the valley to evade and then finally kill that 5th Gen with the machine gun, with the last bullets, was just so satisfying. It was so thrilling. It was so much fun. Incredible. So unexpected. And then we get to the tragic, nearly tragic moment where another 5th gen finds them on open water. They have no flares left. They have no bullets left. They're pretty much dead in the water. And then guess who comes? Hangman. Hangman, their lord and savior, has come to save them. Really great moment. And when that... Because I thought they were both going down, but then when Hangman shows up and blows up the enemy plane, the fifth gen, I was like, yeah! I almost jumped up. I almost jumped up in elation. It's great, because as Warlock told us earlier in the film, before the mission, that they no longer have the technological advantage. The enemy has superior jets that will no problem, no questions asked, take you down if you are in a dogfight. That's why they have to do this mission in a stealthy way to avoid a dogfight. So unfortunately for them, there are already two jets in the air just on a random fly that eventually come after they strike down the airstrip. But man, it was so thrilling, especially when your protagonists are going against insurmountable odds. That just makes the victory so much better. Yeah, it was so perfectly done. And it, it was one of the best third acts I've seen in a long time. Yeah. It's, it's what really makes the movie is the third act. It's incredible. It's the, the last 30 minutes of this movie was really unbelievable, so entertaining, so so enthralling and fun, well-executed, funny, 
just like man it's so incredible and the ending's great because rooster and maverick are reunited basically and they respect each other and we have the same kind of sequence at the end of top gun where they're all high-fiving and handshaking and hugging and yeah. some great photos get taken by some dudes on the deck <laughs> he adds to his collection but what i also like is penny's not waiting for this guy she's gone she's yeah. on a boat somewhere with her daughter she's not just sitting around waiting for maverick to come which i think is a great character piece for her yeah and then she eventually comes to find maverick yeah. later on who knows how long it's been so i really love that aspect where penny's not just waiting for maverick to get home coming to her so and also maverick proved that he didn't mean it when he said he's never gonna leave her again yeah like the first thing he did was go to go to her again yeah. So both of them, great character moments. And then they fly away, and it's so great. It's so Such touching. a great ending. Yeah. Beautiful. The Lady Gaga songs yeah. playing in the, the sunset. sunset and oh, the, my and God. The, P, the P-51 flying around. I wonder if that's actually Tom in those in those shots, probably. Oh, it is, yeah. It's his, well, in the, in the sunset shots. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be. So cool. Because it's actually him flying the P-51. Yeah. And it's Tom freaking Cruise. Love this guy. <laughs> this movie is beyond good. It's my favorite movie of the year. It's gonna be Such hard. It's gonna be time. hard to top this movie. I hope it gets a best picture nom because it really yeah. does deserve it. But obviously, it probably won't because it's a fighter jet movie. But man, yeah, I mean, I, I love the Batman. I love everything, everywhere, all at once. I love the Northman. But this one is no questions the best movie of the year so far. Yeah, I'm just. I was absolutely both times I saw it, just stunned and floored, and so happy when the credits rolled. Just. And it was just really satisfying. Yeah. I don't remember being this happy in a movie theater in, in years, <laughs> dude. So happy. Yeah, it so, was great. Such a good time at the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Great time with the films. Oh, my God. Want to move into some trivia facts? Let's do it. I got a bunch. Okay. According to Miles Teller, the cast actually got to choose their own call signs. He specifically chose Rooster because it was in the same animal family as Goose. I wonder if Hangman didn't choose his because it's kind of essential to, to the, the plot and the character. Yeah, so maybe I not say, him. I would say maybe Hangman does. Or maybe he helped come up with an acronym maybe, for it. Maybe he there, did, though. There could be different options, but it's essential to the character. Well, I mean, Miles, he said that Cass got to choose, so maybe... maybe, But he, maybe for him, he had to have parameters of what it had to be because yeah. it's, because of like he's going to leave you out to, to dry. Yeah. Yeah. At the insistence of Tom Cruise, there are minimal green screen and CGI aerial shots in this film, and even the close-up of cockpit shots are taken during real in-flight sequences. This meant that the cast had to undergo extensive G-Force training sessions to withstand the physical demands of the G-Force pressures during flights. The shirtless beach football montage had to be shot twice because Tom Cruise did not find the first version good enough. The reshoot placed additional pressure on the actors to get their ripped bodies back to reshoot the scene. Cast member Glenn Powell recounted, We shot it, and that night we all went out for milkshakes and tater tots. <laughs> Just like splurge, and everybody grabbed a beer. And a week later, Tom's like, We gotta shoot it again. It wasn't good enough. We're gonna shoot it again. And then everybody's back in the gym again, day and night. The sequence is being used very heavily to promote the movie after a similar scene in the original became iconic and an audience favorite. It worked because it's been all over TikTok. Yeah. Honestly, the Miles Teller look is like taking over social media. Yeah. Like this is the new guy look for the summer. Yeah, people are it's becoming the mustache, the, yeah. the the shirt with the with the Hawaiian shirt. Too bad I can't grow a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise personally designed a three month aviation training course for the new actors to become ready to handle riding in a real F eighteen. So they did three months of training, which he personally paid for. All right, that wraps our episode on Top Gun Maverick. I cannot wait to honestly see this again on an IMAX re-release. I'm sure they will at the end of the year. But if you haven't seen this yet or you've seen it, go see it again because it's, it's such a great experience. Loved every single second of this movie. It was so damn good. Thanks for tuning into our show. We're happy to be back. 
reviewing movies and talking about films. We have a lot of great episodes in the works. We're going to be doing Stranger Things. We're going to be doing Obi-Wan. We're going to be doing Jurassic World Dominion. So lots of great episodes in the next couple of weeks. So be sure to tune in for those. And thanks for dealing with my scratchy throat. (laughs) Take care, y'all.